Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. On Wednesday, we heard from the Federal Reserve. They are on hold. They are going to be patient. Today, we get a jobs report uh, that on many accounts blew all expectations out of the water and portrayed a very strong U.S. economy. So go figure. Try to square those two. I know that Mike Collins is trying to do that, and he's joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Mike Collins, of course, Senior Investment Officer and Senior Portfolio Manager at PGM Fixed Income, which oversees about $730 billion of assets. Mike, thank you so much uh, for being here with us. What does today's blockbuster jobs number mean for the Federal Reserve? Yeah, uh, good morning, uh, Lisa and Paul. It's uh, in our mind, uh, not to get too esoteric right off the start, but it's a, it's a curve flattener, right? Because it blew out um, expectations in terms of the number of jobs, but the wage gains were more muted. Uh, than expect. And that continues to be the trend, not to sound like Larry Kudlow, but it sounds like we're getting growth without the inflation, which is kind of panacea uh, for the Federal Reserve. It means that they can continue to be patient um, and they can continue to um, stay on hold, probably indefinitely, until either uh, the economic data really picks up again uh, or the markets continue to take off, right? I mean, if the stock market's up another 10% and spreads are snapping tighter and the Fed is meeting in March, uh, they're going to have to deal with the financial stability issues. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them do another 180 or, or start pivoting at some point later this year and talking again about maybe trying to get another hike or two off uh, before the end of the year. And that's not priced in it at all right now. All right. So given the, the dovish Fed, given the good numbers we saw today, does that just give the markets the flashing green light to take on risk? Yeah. And, that, and that's the problem, right? I think the Fed has uh, unwittingly given the market this, this green light by saying we are on hold uh, indefinitely right now. And they're even talking about, you know, slowing the pace of their balance sheet reduction and maybe ending it, you know, by the end of this year. So that's a kind of a second uh, green light. And, and that's something that um, worried us several years ago when they kept monetary policy really easy for a long time. We saw some of the speculative excesses starting to build. The leverage in the system was building. Um, the construction markets were maybe getting overheated in some areas. And, and we worry that, you know, in maybe six or 12 months, you could be back in that mode. And then the Fed's going to have to have to focus on the financial stability mandate uh, to try to try to nip that in the bud. Okay. But now we're we're now. It's not six months from now. And as, hey, we're we're long term investors. Okay. Well, th but here's my question. So your long term investors, what do you do in response to this? So so what we're doing is we are um, trying to focus on the long term outlook, which is really for probably slowing growth over the next two or three years. I, we really think growth is going to go from three to two and a half to two to probably one and a half over the next few years in the US. That's just the natural trend, I think. Um, so focus on that, but take advantage of, of near-term opportunities. Uh, so right now, the, the technicals are really good in the credit markets. The reach for yield is back in vogue, right? With the, with the ECB and the Bank of Japan sitting on their hands and a, and a relatively benign Fed, uh, people are, there's a food fight right now for bonds again. So we're riding that, we're overweight credit risk. Uh, taking advantage of those trends, taking advantage of the reasonably robust economy, um, but 
paring back risk on rallies. Our, our MO here is to sell credit risk down on these big rallies. And we've seen an 80% retracement in the high yield uh, index. Right. Okay, wait, the, from, I'm sorry. My, my head's my head's kind of spinning a little bit. So uh, build, go long credit exposure and sell it when it rallies. So I guess, uh, what? Yeah, sell sell into strength. <laughs> sell. I think sell into strength has been our, our mode, right? But it's, but but then when there's any bit of a weakness, build up more. You know, I mean, we took advantage of it late last year. I, I think that was a, a overreaction uh, in credit. You saw some dislocations. You saw a lot of outflows from places like the bank loan market. Uh, there was an opportunity to add risk on the margin uh, at that time. But I think a lot of that um, rally, the markets move really fast, right? The markets always move faster than you think. And it feels like the markets are pricing in now a Fed on hold indefinitely. Um, so, so if you continue to see spreads tighten in here, our, our next move would be to cut credit risk. All right. So it sounds a little bit like a trading mentality in this context of Prudential being one of the longest term investors I can think of. But have you maybe even just in December or are you generally rotating some of your portfolio out of uh, investment grade into high yield, for example? So, so the big trade we've done over the last year or two is is already upgrade the quality of the portfolio significantly. All right, again, taking that, putting that long term hat on, and knowing that you know I don't know if it's in a year or five years, but you're going to have a slowdown in the economy, and you're going to have an increase in default rates. The leverage that has built up in the in the corporate sector, investment grade, high yield to some extent, the bank loan markets is disconcerting, and that will come home to roost and result in more defaults. We know that. Uh, so what we've done is we've We've reduced our high yield exposure. We reduced pretty significantly our exposure to investment grade industrials, investment grade corporate bonds globally, and moved up in the capital structure. We have a big position in very high quality, mostly AAA rated asset backed securities, which give you as much spread as you get in the corporate market without any of that idiosyncratic uh, credit risk or event risk or default risk. And that's a really great opportunistic relative value trade that we've we've had on for uh, a while now. All right, so I'm gonna hand you a crystal ball and I want you to look into it and tell us in two years or three years or whenever you see the next downturn, how bad will it be? It's not gonna be bad. I mean, that's that's the other uh, challenge here, right? This is never easy. Uh, our base case, um, because this cycle has been a lot different, right? The regulatory response to the financial crisis was such that a lot of the normal relevering that you see hasn't happened, right? The banks have delevered aggressively, right? The banks are in the best financial condition they've been in our lives. And I was a bank analyst many years ago. They've never had so much capital and liquidity. Consumers on average are in good shape. Small business on average have not relevered, right? So. So this is not going to be a big downturn if we get one. It'll probably be an asset price correction. Maybe growth slows to 1% or kind of bounces between 0 and 2% for a few years. Um, but it's, it's hard to really envision a big collapse in economic activity, at least in the U.S., Interesting. So I guess if I were to just summarize where you guys are, that's it's a and when I think of Prudential, you guys are monstrous, and you're thinking about long term. Your your policyholders, you're using this rally here to kind of just trade up in quality, get position for what could be a softer two or three year view. Is that a fair assessment? That that's fair. I mean, the the markets are actually giving us the opportunity right now, which is very unusual, to buy really high quality defensive assets like senior debt of banks and like these AAA asset-backed securities at really attractive spreads. So the markets are mispricing the, the limited amount of credit risk in those securities, um, and they're, there's probably overpricing uh, or underpricing the credit risk in the, in the corporate sector. So, so you don't have to give up yield today to actually do this up in quality rotation. So that's a, that's, that trade is going to work in the near term and in the long term.
Michael Collins, thank you very much for joining us. I think I learned a lot here about it, and if I were a prudential policyholder, I think I'd be feeling pretty comfortable. Uh, Mike Collins is a senior investment officer and senior portfolio manager at PGIM Fixed Income. Well, over at Deutsche Bank, Christian Saving, the CEO chairman, has very few options, it seems, for turning around Deutsche Bank. After an eighth straight quarter of declining revenue, reaction from investors and analysts suggested that the cost-cutting at the heart of the CEO's strategy won't be enough to keep markets at bay. To help us kind of dive a little bit deeper into this once behemoth of global banking is Jonathan Tice. Jonathan is a senior banks analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. He's on the phone with us from London. So, Jonathan, thanks very much for joining us. What do you think is the future of Deutsche Bank? Can it survive as a standalone entity? Um, morning. Not um, in its current form, no. I mean, to put this very simply, if you go back a year, let's say, um, consensus was expecting about $30 billion of revenue um, for the bank in 2020 and about $22-23 billion of costs. Consensus is now expecting the same for costs, but $26 billion of revenue. Um, the, the bank is targeting a return on equity of 4% next year. And for that, it's acknowledged that it's actually hoping that client activity picks up, the market gets a bit better. So it's just unsustainable um, in the current form. And unfortunately, the damage to the franchise and the revenue outlook, the, the more you cut costs and the growth in things like near customer and all of the um, investment and expenses for things like anti-money laundering means that there's very, very little they can do in the current form. Okay, so given that, given the fact that Deutsche Bank probably will not remain independent according to your assessment, what's the likelihood that Commerce Bank is the likely merger uh, candidate here, and is that a good thing? Well, when you look at Europe, I mean, it's understandable why the European Commission, the ECB, um, they're saying we need some champions over here, sort of supranational, to take on the JP Morgans, etc. But just putting a Deutsche Bank together with, I don't know, a Barclays or... Um, and Unicredit in itself doesn't really solve anything. So to start with, you do need to right-size, you do need to get efficiencies. And so for that reason, you are looking at further domestic consolidation in Germany. So the reason that people keep coming back to Commerce Bank is, again, that's trading at 0.3 times tangible, just like Deutsche. Um, they need to take an awful lot of cost base out, close more branches, get more synergies. So, yes, I think... The reason we keep arriving at the same conclusion is there's nothing that either bank can do top line. They've done all that they can independently, so you need to create the bad will. Deutsche is the acquirer. They need to raise some capital to do a deal. Then you need, for example, another couple of billion of synergies when you put the two together. Bear in mind that they're already targeting 900 million for folding their domestic mortgage banks together um, with Postbank and Deutsche. So, yes, unfortunately, you've got to start domestically. And then you can then have a sensible conversation about creating a big um, international merger. So where else, Jonathan, would you expect to see consolidation besides Germany? Is it required in France, for example, or the UK? What is just kind of the overall M&A outlook and the consolidation outlook for European banking? Well, in the UK, we've had um, a few of the smaller challenger banks um, coming together, CYBG, and Metro's in trouble at the moment. Um, so I think we'll see a little bit more over here in the UK. Italy, you'll definitely see further consolidation and a little bit more in Spain. But um, to, 
to be honest, Germany is a, a pretty special market because it has a lot of Sparkasser and Landers Bank, unlisted banks. And the reason that it's so unprofitable in Germany is because of these banks. So there, can be, there will be more consolidation in names that you probably never heard of. Um, and I think overall, we'll, will we have one or two big deals within the next 18 months? Yes. I mean, for us, things like Unicredit, Societe Generale makes an awful lot of sense. Maybe a Barclays and a, something like a BMP, that could make sense as well. But I don't think um, we're going to see anything big um, quite yet. But I do think over the next two to three years, in the absence of anything that's sort of exciting top line for these banks, and they can't keep cutting costs, you need the mergers to create proper synergies. So here's a question, and this is kind of in the weeds a little bit, but one one thing that I do when I look at Deutsche Bank's future is I look at their uh, con- contingent capital bonds, their convertible capital bonds, mm-hmm. basically their tier one capital that is debt until they don't have enough capital uh, raised yep. to meet with regulations. So then all of a sudden they could potentially uh, not pay interest on these bonds or even these bonds could get wiped out in a worst case scenario. They're kind of all over the place today. Some are up, some are down. That is surprising to me. I would think that they would be plunging, given the fact that Deutsche Bank got bad results, uh, essentially, and that there's talk that it will not be existing as a standalone bank within the next three months. Can you explain this? Well, I mean, two things there. One, don't forget that a lot of these things are trading at a fair discount to face. And also, if you go back to early 2016, that's when um, the 81s plunged to about 70-something cents in, in the euro. Uh, it was, it's all about your MDA, your maximum dis, um, distributable amount. And can you honor coupons? Can you pay um, your bonuses, etc.? They talked about that on the call. They've got a little bit of headroom. So I don't think anybody thinks, because capital is still above 13%, these things aren't going to get triggered. Um, and at the moment, because they've pretty much got a handle on cost now, I think we've got enough visibility that they can honor the coupons. It isn't really an issue. I mean, a lot of the European um, 81s are trading at a discount now, and, and we're seeing clients talking to us saying, well, why don't we just go short the equity along the 81 because we know that we're going to get paid. I would sort of be in that camp in so much mm. as I think that Deutsche and yeah. a lot of other banks will pay the coupon. This we is, have seen this one is, bank, yeah. a Greek bank, say that it's not paying the coupon this yeah, year. Yeah, but that's Greece. All right, Jonathan Tice, thank you so much. Really interesting analysis. Jonathan Tice, Senior Banks Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from London. Meanwhile, a big wild card for markets is also the price of oil, which plunged in the last three months of last year by 40% by my measure and has had an amazing rally so far year to date. What is going on? How much more does there uh, is there for this uh, this commodity to rally? John Kilduff joining us now, founding partner of Again Capital based in New York. John, you have been prescient when it comes to the price of oil. Where are we in this crude rally? Does it have more upside or is this based Basically, the peak for a while. Yeah, you guys are too kind with that, I have to say. Um, at this point, uh, if, given the, the really the lack of a rally on the um, chaos that's going on in Venezuela here, and you know the continued uh, negative data points coming out of Asia, in particular, in terms of the economy, it is my sense that uh, prices appear to be peaking here. So, peaking oil. What? It, so. It, 
what is really so your supply and demand are you suggesting there that uh, generally imbalance here at the moment i think this saudi arabia in particular is is struggling and working hard to try to get it into balance but we got a data point out of the u.s government yesterday now it's backward looking it's it's from november but u.s production in november hit 11.9 million barrels a day a record uh, have to believe we got higher than that in December, and it'll be even higher number here for January when it finally gets uh, uh, tallied up. So the wave of oil keeps coming at this market. Uh, you saw ExxonMobil's earnings this morning reference their own increase uh, in, in production, and that's a trend that's going to continue. The, the Saudis really have their work cut out for them. Yeah. It's really becoming harder for them with the slowdown that we're seeing in China. Well, John, I guess that then it raises a question. If oil prices are peaking here, are they going to kind of remain range bound or are we headed for another oil plunge? I remind myself that in the bond market, the guys and gals keep always say don't fight the Fed. And in the oil market, you have to say don't fight Saudi Arabia because they do have a lot of uh, heft still and power. So I do think we're going to be uh, somewhat range bound, but a return back down to sub $50 a barrel oil uh, you know, isn't out of the question. And another interesting point that Exxon made today is that they're profitable in their Permian uh, operations at, at $35 a barrel is a remarkable revelation uh, by them. So it shows you how sticky that that production uh, is going to be. So that, that's part of the problem here for the uh, for the oil market. So, John, you mentioned earnings. Royal Dutch Shell reported last night, uh, ExxonMobil this morning, Chevron this morning. Anything in those numbers that really stood out for you as it relates to your call for kind of, you know, range-bound oil? Well, I mean, that they did remarkably well, um, I, I think surprised most folks because the headline, of course, was that oil rightly crashed during, during the quarter. But the fact of the matter is oil prices actually, you know, maintained themselves above $50 a barrel right up until mid-December. Uh, they were above uh, 60 bucks a barrel through October and we're you know we're pushing 60 bucks through most of november so it was a pretty good quarter uh price wise for the majors on that basis and particularly the exposure a lot of them have to the international market you, know, you tack another ten dollars on top of that for the for the brent uh marker the international marker so i think what i've been talking about when i've been on with you guys previously it, you should get an exposure to these companies make sure there's an international uh aspect to them because the relative uh, tightness in the market and other issues that don't affect um, them is, is, is that obviously in the U.S. there's a surfeit of production, there's bottlenecks, there's, there's localized downward pressure on prices. You don't have that internationally, so you want to have that portfolio. Uh, refining did great. Demand all quarter for refined products, jet fuel, diesel fuel, gasoline here in the United States, remarkably strong. So they all seem to capitalize on that, the big guys, that is. So you're talking about the big guys. Let's talk about some of the little guys. Yesterday, Blackstone's GSO unit uh, reported a really poor earning, particularly tied to some distressed companies in the oil patch. And I'm wondering if we do get sub $50 oil uh, for any sort of prolonged period, do you expect the insolvencies to sort of return in that uh, industry? I do. They, uh, they, for the most part, despite what ExxonMobil said about $35 a barrel oil, uh, the all-in costs for most of these companies, they start to struggle uh, when we're under $50. Um, the banks, you know, the last go-around on this, the, the banks didn't necessarily force a lot of them, as many of them out of business as I thought they would, uh, that sort of uh, pretend and extend type of, uh, uh, you know, actions went on. 
Uh, I think this time, though, the gig will be up and you will see a lot of consolidation. The thing to remember is that, though, that that oil production and that infrastructure doesn't go away. It just gets sold to somebody at a uh, at a fire sale price. So, um so, John, just real quickly, one, one interesting thing I saw is that uh, for ExxonMobil, the CEO will be on the earnings call for the first time in 15 years. What's going on there? I think they've had a real wake-up call there at ExxonMobil. Uh, you know, for so long, you know, they were considered sort of the, you know, class of the industry, and they stumbled. Uh, they, they bought a natural gas company uh, at, at the heights of the natural gas, uh, you know, price structure. Um and, you know, they've been criticized for a lot of other different things. And they're finally getting their act together. Um, and it's finally, be, I think, returning to the kind of company that we all admired and, and was so fantastic and still is to a large degree. Don't get me wrong. But I think they realize that they can't hide in a shell anymore and they have to be more uh, out there and, and press in their case. I mean, I saw a couple of interviews with the gentleman already this morning and uh, he was fantastic. It was sh- shed a lot of light on the operations. wasn't cagey like they had been historically. It's it's a new company, and I think they're uh, it's uh, worth a look at this point for sure for investors. John Kildoff, thanks so much. John Kildoff is a founding partner of Again Capital, joining us on the phone here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Boy, we are right smack in the middle of tech earnings. We had blowout numbers from Google. But last night we had some numbers coming out of Amazon that were a little weaker than expected, particularly as it relates to their forward growth. Uh, So let's dig into some tech here today. And as we like to do that, we always like to turn to our good friend Shira Ovide. Shira is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and she joins us once again in our Bloomberg Interactive studio. And Shira came out with a really cool column today entitled, Amazon mystery. Where did all the growth go? Higher margins are great, but it's not exactly what investors have been paying for, which is, I think, a great take on what's happening at Amazon. It appears to be that after years and years and years and years of no profit and just focusing on top line revenue growth, Jeff Bezos' company is actually starting to provide some significant profits pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. You're right. Although I think the, the thing that really freaked out investors was that Amazon said this year, 2019, would be another year of significant investment, at least compared to 2018, where spending growth kind of slowed. And as a result, you saw profit margins getting um, plumper, at least by Amazon's relatively modest standards. But the issue, of course, is the the top line appears to be uh, the, the top line growth seems to be slowing considerably, and it's a little bit confounding how that's happening, honestly, because it, it does seem like U.S. retail sales are going great. The U.S. economy, where Amazon generates um, the, the vast majority of its revenue, is going great. Amazon seems to be gaining share, and yet the the growth is slowing there. This is sort of the conundrum that you and I have talked about for years, which is that nobody looks at the profit margins of Amazon. They never have. Is this the beginning of actually looking at the profit margins? I think it is. And and I think that story started to change um, a year or so ago. And, and look, you can see what's happening at Amazon 
to to grow that bottom line, which is they're getting an increasing share of revenue from businesses that are relatively higher profit margins. So uh, Amazon Web Services, their cloud computing division, the revenue growth there continues at a you know really significant rate, forty five percent or so in in the quarter. Um, that has much higher margins than Amazon's e-commerce business, something like 30% compared to 5% in their e-commerce business. So as more of Amazon's overall revenue comes from AWS, you see the the total company margins go up. Same for their digital advertising business. Same for Amazon is now selling uh, more than half of the merchandise online uh, is coming not from Amazon itself, but from the outside companies that are using Amazon as a sales channel. And um, those sales are uh, significantly more profitable for Amazon because they're just kind of taking a commission, basically. So the stock's down uh, almost 4% today, and I think that's primarily on the weaker-than-expected revenue guidance that you highlighted. The company called out in on their call last night that part of the reason for the more cautious revenue outlook was India. Now, that is a, a big growth driver for them, but apparently there's been some regulatory changes there that are impacting their business. What's going on there? Yeah, India has been a really significant investment market for Amazon and Walmart, too, which bought Flipkart, a, a kind of large e-commerce operation in India. India is basically now the new gold rush for a lot of tech companies around the world, including e-commerce companies. Uh, but what the Indian government did is it, it tightened some regulations regulations that essentially prohibit companies like Amazon and Walmart, foreign companies, from uh, selling goods on their own or having kind of their affiliated companies selling goods on their own as opposed to just being a middleman for sales by uh, by local companies. And so that has meant that both Walmart and Amazon have had to remove a lot of items um, from their India websites, which I think is is worrying investors. I want to shift gears a little bit uh, because we also have been getting other tech earnings. And Facebook really, I got to say, is the one that stands out the most to me of this entire earnings season. Yesterday, shares rose 11%. Today, they're basically flat. Uh, I do also want to just give an update because yesterday we spoke about Facebook uh, with David Garrity. And uh, he was saying that, uh, that, that, that Facebook had been removed from some Apple apps. It wasn't entirely accurate the way that we had originally framed it. Um, and a Facebook spokesman just noted that we have our we have had our enterprise certification, which enables our internal employee applications restored. We are in the process of getting our internal apps up and running. To be clear, this didn't have an impact on our consumer-facing services, so uh, there was never any kind of breach in a consumers' ability to download Facebook from their Apple products. But I'm just wondering, Shira, in light of some of the privacy crackdowns from other companies like Apple, etc., with Facebook. Is Facebook really in the clear the way that the share price seems to suggest, or are they going to face more backlash here? So I think what's going to happen to Facebook is pretty similar to what's happened at Google over the last decade. So at Google, too, that's a company that has faced a lot of regulatory and privacy questions um, for, for many years, including, if you remember, the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S., um, launched a significant investigation into whether Google was abusing its monopoly on search and eventually uh, came out that said, said no. But it was a close call at the FTC and, and Google has faced regulatory headaches in Europe and so on. So I think basically this is the new cost of doing business for 
uh, for Google for a long time and now for Facebook that it is just going to be a regular drumbeat of uh, questions and pressure on that company around uh, data privacy, security, the way that they use the enormous um, databases of data they have on um, on billions of people. And no, I don't think it's going to affect business, but I think there will be questions for the rest of that company's life uh, about whether they're kind of one regulatory investigation away from having a, a crippling business impact. So just following up on, on Google, the company does report earnings uh, Monday after the close, conference call 4.30 uh, Eastern time. What are you looking for uh, in the results? So one thing I'm looking for is we saw this week from the big tech earnings that there are now significant questions around growth. Um, and we started to see that last year. And I think all of the big tech companies now, to a different degree, have questions about where is the growth going to come from? And uh, and Google faces that as well. So I, I think I'm going to focus a lot on the top line. Um, Google has made a lot of investments all over its business, trying to find the next big business beyond um, digital advertising. And uh, it hasn't yet found it. But boy, you know, if you're going to be a one trick pony, that is a really good pony. But their devices, they're still not kind of. No, I mean, uh, for the basically everything Google invests in is just kind of a drop in the ocean compared to their core advertising business. But the good thing is that the core advertising business is so successful and remains successful and growing fast that they have a long leash to figure out whatever might come next. Shira Ovide, thank you so much for being with us and taking time out of this incredibly busy week for you. Shira Ovide is technology columnist for us at Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.